0: This is exactly right.
1: Casefile is an award winning podcast that presents unforgettable true crime stories.
0: Presented by an anonymous host, Casefile delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser known cases that
1: deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Kate Winkler Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime.
1: And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them.
0: Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes.
1: And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries.
0: Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens.
1: Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold.
0: This is Buried Bones.
1: Kate, how's it going?
0: It's going well. How's it going with you?
1: I'm doing very good. Thank you for asking.
0: So a couple of weeks ago, we tried to tape and you had a very scratchy throat and it got me thinking, somebody asked me how you and I take care of our voices because, you know, our voices are are important to our job. Do you do anything special to protect your voice either day of our taping or, you know, just in general?
1: I probably should, but I don't. (laughs) I, I, you should. <laughs> I, I have had situations to where, you know, I just can't clear my throat. Mm-hmm. And of course, I've had people give me, you know, the honey tea and, or hot liquids that will help. It's something that I've never really tried to do. I just know, even though I work with my voice all the time, I actually have a very weak voice.
0: How? I don't hear that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can project, you know, and and when I say weak, it's it's not so much it's it's soft. It's just that if I talk for an extended period of time, like if I'm providing training, I lack stamina. And that evening after giving a presentation or teaching, it almost feels like I have a sore throat.
0: Yeah, that's exerting your voice a lot. I went to a voice coach and we worked a lot on breathing and when to breathe so that I could make it through a lot of sentences. You know, I record every day, either for our show or for my other two shows, or I have an audio book coming up. Literally every day I'm in this closet. So I had to go to my doctor probably about a year and a half ago and just say, I have cedar fever. My kids bring home stuff all the time. How do I stay healthy other than washing your hands and doing all the things they talk about? And so my routine probably isn't intense to other people, but for me... I take, you know, like a Zyrtec. I do two different nose sprays at night. I do a nasal rinse every single night. I only have one cup of caffeine. I drink, as you notice, I drink pretty much in between each sentence. I drink a hot tea. Decaffeinated with lemon. I'm pretty specific because if my voice is not up to par, it totally messes up my schedule and Alexis's schedule and probably your schedule. So <laughs> I try to take really good care of it, but I had never cared before. And of course, when I was speaking either publicly before I started doing the podcast or to my students... I would get like you did, and my voice would get tired, and I would start sounding like a prepubescent boy, a little, bit, <laughs> a, little, <laughs> a little bit of voice cracking, and I still get that, but I think the more you do this, the stronger your voice gets.
1: Well, you know, I think uh, I'm going to give you a recommendation that will simplify your voice care. Okay. Bourbon. <laughs> it really works. <laughs>
0: Are you going to suggest milk also, and, <laughs> and I should have a beer beforehand, and... <laughs> Hot sauce and everything else they tell you
1: not to do. No, just get that that straight alcohol in there. It really thins out anything that's in your throat. And uh, it just kind of greases the skids a little Uh, bit.
0: Okay. You're never going to get this to happen, but I really do appreciate you trying, Paul. (laughs) Okay, well, let's turn to our next case, which is, again, my favorite time period, 1800s, and this is New York State. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Let's set the scene. This story is a humdinger, as my dad would say. I'm sure everybody's dad says humdinger. But but this is a humdinger of a story because it's set in late 1800s, and it's in the Brookfield hamlet of Oyster Bay, Long Island. And I'm already going to warn you, there are quite a few characters in this cast of characters with this story. So I'll do my best to remind you of who is who and connected. But we've got three different crimes that have all been connected together. And so it can get a little complicated, but I'll do my best to simplify. I know you like simplifying, so I'm going to keep it simple for you.
1: (laughs) Sounds good. I just want to quickly look up where Oyster Bay is. I have
0: a map. I don't know if that's at all helpful. Oyster Bay. So this is Long Island. And I don't know anything about Long Island, do you? I mean, I've been there a couple of times, but...
1: You know, I've never been out to Long Island. I did do a news spot on the Long Island serial killer, so I kind of got familiar with that case, Mm -hmm. uh, which gave me a little bit of a better understanding of the geography of Long Island. You know, But for, for this case, and one of the reasons why I'm asking to just take a look at this Oyster Bay location is just so I can understand the geography. Because when we start talking about crime, you know, today everybody has probably heard of geographic profiling. Mm -hmm. And that is a real thing. Geography influences where and how criminals might commit crimes. And so I usually want to have at least a sense of the location before I start really starting to hear the details. That I had never heard of Oyster Bay Long Island before.
0: You know, I have a question about that. You and I have talked about geographic profiling before. What about somebody like an Israel Keys who was all over the map? Does that break a rule in that medium that you would use for profiling?
1: Well, you know, when you start dealing with an offender that is traveling wide distances, you know, of course, the more data points that you have, the more crimes the offender commits within a particular area, that is more informative geographically. Whereas let's say you have the one-off case, like with Israel Keys going all the way out to the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Now you can't really reconcile how the geography is influencing his his movement patterns as much. Mm-hmm. However, that one point, there may be features about that location that made it easier for the offender to commit the crime. And that may be the reason why the offender chose that location over the victims. Okay. Instead of saying, oh, I'm targeting these victims, I know I can find victims within this geographic region, and that geographic region makes it easy and lowers my risk in order to commit the crime and get away with it.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Back to 1883, which is where we are in the hamlet of Oyster Bay, Long Island, in this time period 1883 it's small it's a quiet farming community in Queens County New York and one of our main characters is a 70-year-old man named Garrett maybe and he's going to have two women in his life die very soon And before you ask, he is not going to be a suspect. Okay, He is going to be a victim that survives, and I'll tell you why he is not a suspect. All of this happens early on a Saturday, November 17th. So these crimes that we are connecting are all winter. They all have snow. Everybody has snow on the ground in this time. And that actually plays into the story. Garrett, maybe, as I mentioned, is a 70-year-old man. And in early morning hours on this Saturday, he screams for help, and the neighbors hear. And the nearest farmhouse is about a 100 yards away across from the road. And the neighbors come, when he screams, the neighbors come across the road. Six men head toward the maybe farm, and they all have shotguns and shovels preparing for the worst. So Garrett is not going to be a suspect because years ago, Garrett suffered a stroke that left him paralyzed from the waist down. He is also completely blind. Oh, wow. So he can't move, and he has been really brutally assaulted. So we'll talk about what happens. First, let's talk about the family and who the victims are. So there's Garrett, who is 70, his wife, Lydia, who is 73 years old, and then Annie, who is his 39-year-old unmarried daughter. And they live in this farmhouse on 80 acres of land. And this is historic farmland, and they're not well-to-do, but, you know, well enough where they have some nice belongings. So the men rush into the maybe farmhouse because they can hear Garrett screaming. He's in his chair. He's barely conscious because one of the neighbors said he is bleeding profusely from a severe wound over his left temple. He says that he's been beaten very badly, and he actually survives, and he's able to talk So the men are frantic because it's early in the morning and it's cold outside. And Garrett is trying to explain what happened He first says, please go check the barn because his wife and his daughter are out there. And so these six men, all armed with their shotguns, walk out about 200 yards from the house to the barn. One of the men is a guy named William Remsen, who is a witness. He has nothing really to do with the story. He describes what happens. He opens the barn door and he grabs a lantern that's already been lit, we presume by one of these women. He looks around and he describes being able to see two women. He says, as I went climbing to the hay mow, which is a part of the barn where the hay is stored, I noticed a hand sticking up in an empty cow stall. Jumping down, I found partially covered over with dead leaves, the body of Annie, who was the daughter. He said, from the position in which she was lying, I judge she must have made a desperate struggle for her life. And in the corner, completely covered by the leaves, lay the dead body of her mother. The latter's body, the mother's body was cold, but Annie's body was warm and there was no blood visible. The only markings of violence were prints of what looked like a thumb and a finger on their throats. And in fact, the coroner said that they were strangled to death. And it turns out that Garrett has been hit with what appears to be a hammer. So, As of right now, you've got two women who are dead in the barn, and then the patriarch of the family has been beaten profusely in the house. Just hearing that, just that bit, what do you think is potentially what happened? And I will say they said there is no sign of sexual assault on either woman. We always have that caveat that doesn't mean anything, but this seems like a pretty brutal scene.
1: One thing that really stands out to me is you have victims in two different structures. You have Garrett, who's inside the main house, and then you have the two women who are found dead out in the barn. So now I'm starting to piece together Garrett is aware that his wife and daughter were out in the barn. So, this must be something that happened. They moved and separated themselves out in the barn when there is no threat present, is my guess. Mm-hmm. The offender or offenders then came in, and there's no information right now to be able to determine the sequence as to who was attacked first. You know, were the women attacked out in the barn first and did the offender move into the house? Maybe thinking there's valuables in the house and there's Garrett and he's very easily dispatched. Mm -hmm. Right now, that stands out to me. And so this is something that I'm going to be kind of keying in on as you move forward as to, okay, are we dealing with multiple offenders? Are we dealing with a single offender that moved into two different structures? And then ultimately, what else is observed as happening within either the barn or the main house? Is there any disturbance inside the house? Like somebody is searching, like there is a burglary slash robbery aspect to this case. What was the state of dress of the two women? Was uh, Annie, the younger woman, maybe more focus was put on her in a sexual manner just due to her youthfulness versus, you know, Lydia being 73 years old. So that's kind of what I'm setting myself up mentally to start checking the boxes as you give me more details.
0: Okay, let me give you more details because Garrett has been coming in and out of consciousness. And when the investigators come, he manages to explain what his remembrance of the sequence of events were that night. So it's early in the morning. Lydia, who is his wife, has gone out to the barn at 4.30 to milk the cows. This was predictable. She did this every morning at 4.30. So she goes to the barn and Garrett's listening, waiting for her to come back. She wasn't back at five. So after 30 minutes, she wasn't back. He became alarmed. So he turned to his daughter, Annie, and said, go check on mom. When Annie didn't return, he became incredibly alarmed because there were footsteps in the house. And he knew that the footsteps didn't belong to either woman. So he says, he's bracing himself. He calls out into the darkness and said, who's there? And there's a man's voice who was low in pitch, and he said, me. Hmm. Then Garrett heard this person go upstairs, rustle around for a little bit and come back down and say, give me your watch. And Garrett said to the intruder, I'm blind. I don't even know where my watch is. It's 4.30 in the morning. I didn't put it on. The stranger said, then I will kill you. And he grabbed Garrett's cane, which was nearby, and beat him until he knocked him out, which is where we get the left temple wound Garrett eventually regained consciousness, and that's when he started screaming for help. So, we know that upstairs is Lydia's bedroom. There's a bureau, and inside, there are a lot of valuables that this person takes. Cash, a Cameo brooch, a gold chain, a gold watch. It's about $4,000 in today's money. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot. And this is a specific space. The reason I'm emphasizing the voice so much is because the voice comes into play later on, and we've never really talked about, you know, voice recognition, voice identification. So I'll be interested to see what you say about all that.
1: Sure. One thing really, really stands out about what you just said. You know, first, Garrett, though he suffered head trauma, the details that he's providing, he is very much alert prior to being Mm -hmm. attacked. And that's significant. So I would think the fact that this male... Voice. He's inside the house. And then you have a man, the homeowner, yelling out, and the offender doesn't engage with this threat inside the house. Almost tells me that this offender has prior knowledge that Garrett is disabled. Mm -hmm. And so the man goes upstairs, has prior knowledge where the valuables are. And then comes down and becomes the threat and attacks Garrett, you know, because Garrett doesn't want to give him a watch or can't give him the watch. So now that's intriguing to me. Now, could the offender have been told by Lydia or Annie, you know, hey, don't hurt our dad. He's he's disabled. You know, maybe he had got information right then and there. But I'm leaning towards somebody who has inside knowledge about this family a little bit. Is this a farmhand? Is this somebody who knew the family and waited for, you know, Lydia to separate herself so he could take Lydia out? And then Annie happened to come out and he takes Annie out. And now he knows he doesn't have any resistance from Garrett inside the house.
0: Well, let's see if you're right. We'll find out in a little bit. The timeline that Garrett offered seemed to line up with what the witnesses say they discovered when they went into the barn, which was, we know Lydia went out first, according to Garrett. Her body was cold. I know it was very cold in November, but Annie's body was still warm. So the sequence of events seems right. It doesn't seem like he's lying and nor would he have a reason to, but all that lines up. Let me tell you what the doctors say. So according to the coroner's report, and this is 1883 coroner's reports, They observed that Lydia's face and head, so this is the mom, shows signs of congestion, which I noted to you in my little prep document, and I looked it up and it said full of blood. Can you explain a little bit more about what signs of congestion is?
1: Well, this is, this is a feature that is seen in the faces of somebody that's been strangled. So when the blood is restricted through strangulation in the neck, you know, the heart is still pumping. And the blood typically is now being pushed up through the carotid arteries up into the head. And then if there's no obstruction, it will drain out of the head through the jugular veins. Mm-hmm. But now when there's constriction around the neck... You know, you have a moment in time in which blood is still able to flow up into the head, but it can't get out. And so pressure builds up. And now you start to see this flushing of this face, this congestion as the blood is trapped up into the head. And the pressure actually can build up quite dramatically in the head. And this is where now you get the smaller blood vessels, the capillaries, like bursting in the, the eyes, this petechia or yeah. in the eyelids. And then eventually you also can see even around the heart, you know, uh, some blood vessels bursting or a congestion, fluid buildup inside the lungs, all from strangulation. So the body reacts to blood being restricted at the neck, more so than just shutting off the blood flow.
0: That's interesting. And In the coroner said that Annie had three marks on the left side of her neck and one on the right, showing clearly the prints of the murderer's fingers. And her left hand is described also as congested, as if been firmly gripped. Is that the same concept? I mean, is that true? Would you really see that blood pool with the, gripping somebody's hand so much?
1: With the hand, I, I would expect that what is being described as more of a contusion, you mm-hmm. know, like a bruise to the hand. Okay. Um, but of course, when there is manual strangulation, you can see outlines of, you know, the thumb, the fingers, the fingertips as that particular spot on the neck is receiving more force.
0: Okay. Well, let's go through the investigation because, as you can imagine, this alarmed Oyster Bay and this was a a small farming community not used to this sort of crime. So a double murder and an incredible assault was very upsetting to people. And the public was pressuring investigators, of course, immediately to track down people, track down witnesses. So in the following days, they alert police, all these neighbors alert police to a man that they described as a five foot six red bearded, they called hobo, I would say drifter, I suppose, that has been around in the Bay Area. Somebody who has sort of just been in and out. They didn't really recognize, but someone who didn't look like he was up to any good. Several men fit this description and they're arrested over the next few days, but For drifters, they all had airtight alibis, it seems. So this led nowhere. No murderer is caught for quite a while. There is a man named James Doyle who is a drifter, and he was identified by Garrett's son-in-law as the man who had been sort of walking around the maybe property without permission in the weeks leading up to this. And this checks out, Doyle had been living in a community home that was only about a quarter of a mile away from where the murders happened. So then they start doing the infamous shoe print comparison. We've talked about shoe prints before and whether they're accurate. They took the shoe prints that were outside, and I don't know if it was snow, but they felt confident that they could really see the treads and everything. And they took his shoe prints and compared them to the prints near the crime scene, and they appeared to fit. When do shoe prints really work in a case? When are they helpful? I mean, are they if they're Italian loafers that were specially made for
1: one person? Is that it? Are you talking about like Bruno Malley's and (laughs) leaving prints in the victim's blood like in O.J. Simpson?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we've talked about how when you find biological evidence on a piece of clothing from a suspect, that that can connect them. Mm -hmm. But a simple, I have a Nike Air that's, you know a size 14 men's that can't do it right
1: yeah well there's there's definitely layers to this question in terms of how helpful uh, shoe prints or shoe impressions are you know first is the quality of the print how much detail is actually recorded When people are walking, oftentimes just the movement of the foot, you know, heel to toe, et cetera, can disrupt that print. So Mm -hmm. they're not as good as if somebody were to just step straight down and leave a nice, unobscured outline. Mm -hmm. In this day and age, of course, now you have, let's say, a quality shoe print at a crime scene. You can readily see the details of the tread pattern. And now it's, okay, what make model shoe Yeah has this tread pattern, and there's complexities with that. Some make and models have very unique tread patterns that are only on those make and models, and then other tread patterns are across different makes and models. You know, they're almost like generic tread patterns that are purchased. These outsoles are purchased, and then different manufacturers use those same outsoles on their own product, and this is where having expertise in the manufacturing of the shoes to assess, you know, how common or rare this tread pattern is. Shoe print and and shoe impression evidence can be valuable for sure.
0: Well, in this case, these are shoe prints that are not found inside the house or inside the barn. They're just on the property, not far from the house or the barn. So if I were James Doyle and I initially said, I've never been there before, and someone said, well, we found your shoe print, I would say, oh, you know what? Maybe I have. I don't know. I drift around. I, I don't know. And there's no way to say right. because it's not inside the house or upstairs where the bureau is. So there are several things in in this particular case that, that are pretty sketchy. Here's the next one. So Garrett says he's never met this man, James Doyle, who they bring in. But Garrett says he really feels like he can remember the voice who said me and then who said, I will kill you. So they bring James Doyle in and he is told, and you know where this is going, he has said, repeat these words over and over again. And Garrett says, that's the guy. That's the guy who said those words. <laughs> that was an eye roll. I don't know if I've ever seen you eye roll
1: before. <laughs> well, you know, this is where how much bias has been predisposed into Garrett. You know, here investigators are bringing a singular male in, having him recite the lines. Mm -hmm. This is very akin to how not to do a photo lineup, Mm -hmm. where you come in with a single photo of a person and say, "Is this the guy?" Your partner is sitting there, kind of going, "Just say yes," you know. (laughs) So that's where it's tough to put any weight on this witness testimony that. This voice is what he heard. So right now, if we have Doyle's shoe prints that aren't inside the two actual crime scene locations or just outside, that really weakens that evidence. And this voice recognition, I would say I can't put any weight on that, the way that it was conducted. And even if it was conducted in a more robust manner, I still think it's relatively weak. At this point in time, there isn't enough to say, well, Doyle is the killer.
0: Yeah. And the jury agrees. He had been arrested. He was put on trial. There wasn't enough evidence. He was found not guilty and released. So the maybe murders of these two women go unsolved. And Garrett, of course, is incredibly upset and still pressuring investigators. So here comes another attack less than two months later. So now we're in January of 1884, the next year, and there's another home invasion. And this is also in Oyster Bay, just three miles from the Maybes farm. So in this attack, it's a wealthy couple named Mr. and Mrs. James Townsend, and they are discovered badly beaten inside their home. They both survive. Very similar circumstances. A home invasion where things are taken. And this is, I I guess, when geographic profiling comes in also. This is very close. The time between these two attacks is just two months later, and they're discovered around 7 o'clock in the morning. They both have horrific head wounds, but Mrs. Townsend is in a lot better shape than her husband. She's covered with blood, which was matted in her gray hair, and there are pools of blood formed near her. In an adjoining lounge, her husband is lying unconscious and bleeding from the head wound, and she is trying to describe who the attackers are, and she thinks maybe a black man, But there's no specifics there. She's not a particularly good witness. However, underneath the kitchen table, they find a weapon, which is a mason's hammer covered in blood and hair. And I'm going to give you a hint. These are connected cases. So we've gone from an old man being beaten with his own cane to it seems like someone brought a weapon with them to this home invasion.
1: Okay. And the Townsend's, you mentioned that Mrs. Townsend had gray hair. Do you know their ages?
0: elderly, you know, over 70, but survived.
1: So we have Garrett and Lydia, maybe, are in their 70s. Now we have Mr. and Mrs. Townsend are also in their 70s. So we have similar victimology in terms of age. The Townsends also had assets, I'm assuming, decent financial assets. Mm -hmm. Okay, so very similar to the maybes. I'm starting to see a pattern. It's only, you know, two cases right now. But is this an offender that is going after elderly couples in part Because this offender has the self-confidence that physically he would be able to control these couples, plus these couples have the financial assets that make committing this crime worth his time.
0: And I think that you're right. It's obviously a pattern that's happening. My question is, how well does the offender need to know these two families in order to pull this off? Is this a simple observing, at least with the Townsends, just observing them coming in and out and casing the place? Or do you have to feel the level of comfort that you can take out Mr. Townsend by actually knowing him and whatever his physical characteristics are?
1: Well, most certainly, if the offender has detailed knowledge, of the victims, uh, their life patterns, etc., That helps the offender plan the attack. But it's surprising how well, let's say a serial burglar, how insightful these types of criminals are from just observing from afar hmm. and what they can determine about the victims, what they can determine about the property, about the amount of Financial assets, disposable income Mm -hmm. the victims have and likely the, the types of valuables that might be inside the house without ever knowing the victims or going inside the house ahead of time. They're very in tune with observing neighborhoods and focusing in on those victims and those houses that are going to be fruitful to the efforts that they're going to put out. So it's tough at this point to say that the offender in the Maybe and Townsend's attacks had to know both. Right. That's where I, I kind of go back to the offender, at least in the Maybe attack, in my opinion, was aware that Garrett was not a threat when he's inside the house. Otherwise, he would have gone and attacked Garrett first before going upstairs.
0: This is a small community, I'll remind you as we move forward. This is a small community where a lot of people work with each other, a lot of people know each other. And what the police are saying, the investigators are saying, is that they absolutely believe that these two cases are connected because this sort of thing just doesn't happen in the area. There is a pair of overalls that have blood stains, which are found on the property. And, of course, they also have that mason hammer, So before I even tell you about these overalls, this is one of many cases that I have reported on where people leave behind items of clothing. I do not understand it. Is it because they're going to get spotted and they don't want to get spotted with blood? I guess that makes sense. But stripping down right there on the crime scene just seems crazy to me.
1: Well, with something like the overalls, likely the offender had a full set of clothes underneath Uh, especially if this was a planned attack. Maybe the overalls were, were really being worn in the vein of as an apron, knowing that there's a chance that there could be blood. But here in 1883, of course, they couldn't do anything with that blood outside of, say, that looks like blood. And so the offender, if he's looking at himself and going, I'm covered with blood, I can't be wandering around town like this, he's going to ditch those clothes. And even though potentially in this day and age, that would be a huge mistake because his DNA is on the clothes and the victim's blood is on the clothes, this is awesome evidence. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't do anything with it. So at this point, it's a smart decision by the offender to get rid of the evidence of violence on his clothing. And it doesn't matter that it's just left there right at the crime scene because they didn't have the forensics that we do today in order to do. Anything with it?
0: Well, it really trips up this one man named John Tappan. So, John Tappan is white. And remember, Mrs. Townsend had reported she thought the attacker was black, but she wasn't sure. Okay. So, John Tappan is a local man who takes odd jobs, but his main job is as a stonemason. Okay. And these are his overalls, and that is his hammer. So his wife identifies the overalls as his. He says they are mine. He says the mason hammer is his. He also says I was one of the six responders to Garrett's cries for help on the other farm. So he was one of those
1: witnesses. He's putting himself at the initial homicide location and then his overalls, and he's admitting that this mason hammer is his, are at the second location. Mm -hmm. Now, is he saying, well, those must have been stolen by, you know, the actual killer?
0: Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) That's it. Okay. He said they were stolen. He actually gave, he was very nervous, and he gave a lot of different answers, unfortunately, for him. And he said they were stolen, that those have been missing for a long time. One of the other issues is that he also worked in the maybe home. So not only was he a first responder to Garrett's cries, he had actually done stonework for the maybes at some point, as he had with many families in that area.
1: Okay, so, you know, he's kind of checking the boxes that I've... You know, put out there in terms of what I think about this offender. Yep. Now it gets into these two crimes are obviously there's a huge financial motive. Mm-hmm. Is there anything going on with happened you know, financially? Is he in, in financial distress? Is he needing to commit to these types of crimes in order to get by? Does he have a criminal history involving burglary? You know, this is where now assessing him as a suspect and ultimately trying to figure out does he possess any of these stolen items from these two attack locations?
0: That's a no to all of those questions. He didn't seem to need the money. He had steady work. He had done a variety of things, but he was a stonemason consistently. He had a farm of his own, a homestead, and he lived there with his brother. He didn't seem to have any prior history, no criminal history. And, you know, all of this is very confusing to John Tappan, about how these items ended up. I mean, he even testified at the Inquisition, the initial inquest into what happened with the maybes, you know, a couple of months ago. So he is all over both of these cases. And then things get pretty bad for John because the investigators had been keeping an eye on a man named Edmund Tappan, who is John's brother. Edmund lives very close to the maybe homestead, and they had kept an eye on him because he either had a learning disability or a mental illness. He acted differently. It made investigators uncomfortable. And they thought because of his proximity to the maybe homestead, that he had been involved, and maybe he and John did all of this together. So they question Edmund Tappen and he has a complete breakdown. And he says that John, his brother, actually did kill Lydia and Annie, maybe, went into the house, got the valuables. He gives a pretty extensive confession with some vagueness, though. And John said, I have no idea what's happening. Okay. And Edmund said, my brother did it, killed the two women on the maybe property, took all of the loot, and sold it at a pawn shop and then gave him, Edmund, $10 to keep his mouth shut. And Edmund actually signed a confession, had it notarized. And after he did that, he started having convulsions and got very, very ill. And I think one of the things that was a big key is that people knew him and they knew that Edmund was unreliable, not because he was a liar or shifty, Just because of his mental state, people couldn't believe what he did. Yet, this is enough for, you know, the investigators to pursue a case against both brothers.
1: Yeah, and is Edmund saying that he was actually present for both of these attacks?
0: That's a good point. Nobody's talking about the Townsend. They're only talking about maybe at this point.
1: Yeah. So, assessing Edmund's confession, of course, is if a proper interview was done, this is where the confession should be detailing aspects of the crime that have not been made public, but also when you are dealing with somebody who is suffering from, let's say, a mental disability. Mm -hmm. This is where things get dicey because it has been shown that people with this type of disability are more likely to do a false confession. I'm not sure if I'm really confident with Edmund's confession in this case yet. I want to hear more. Did he provide sufficient detail where now it's like I can verify through physical evidence at the crime scene that his confession is spot on and only people who were present would know this?
0: I don't believe in this case that investigators withheld information. I think that everything that Edmund said tallied with what they knew about the case. The problem was the reporters had known every detail of the case. Remember the maybes were two months ago. There was plenty of time to look at the newspapers and be well-versed. Here's the problem. They bring in Garrett for another voice identification. Oh, boy. I know. He listens to Edmund. So Edmund, the brother who had confessed to his voice and said, it's him. That's the one who said that I'm going to kill you. That's the one who replied, me. And that was enough to arrest both of these men.
1: So Garrett has already fingered James Doyle as being the voice. Yep. And that didn't go anywhere. And now he's fingering the next prime suspects in the case as being the voices that he heard or the voice he heard. Right. I mean, this really undermines the veracity of Garrett's witness statements related to recognizing these male voices.
0: That will be an interesting foreshadowing for the rest of this case. Garrett is an unreliable witness. And you can understand that. He's trying to help. Sure, He's not doing this, it sounds like, maliciously. He's trying. He wants justice for his wife and his daughter. But Garrett inserts himself a little bit more later on. So we've got John Tappan and Edmund Tappan in jail awaiting probably a preliminary hearing just to try to figure out if they should go to trial. Two weeks after the Townsend attack... There is another home invasion on Long Island. It takes place at six thirty in the morning. It feels very familiar. The Sprague family homestead in East Meadow. Another prominent family, another elderly family. It sounds like the assailant in this case is described as a black man. And let's remember that John and Edmund Tappan, who are the main suspects in those other two cases, are in jail. Perfect alibi.
1: They're in custody. So now I need to hear details about the veracity of the witness statement saying that this is a black male.
0: Okay, so this is what the witnesses say happened. It is Celie and Sarah Sprague, and they are in their farmhouse. This man enters wearing a mask, and he ambushes Sarah in the kitchen, knocks her to the ground, and takes around $38. The man then bolts with the money, at which point Sarah runs to the neighbor's house for help, When she returns to the farm, they find her husband, Seely had been knocked out in the barn. He's lying in a pool of frozen blood and appears to have been hit on the head with a large metal bar, which is found nearby, that's used to hold railroad tracks together. His skull is fractured, and it doesn't look like he's going to survive, but then he's taken to the hospital, and he does survive. So this is another very violent attack. He only got $38 worth of stuff on this one. I'm curious about ambushing the wife in the house. Why then go to the barn? There aren't valuables in the barn, are there?
1: Well, do we know that that's the sequence? I mean, just like with maybes, it appears that he understands this farming culture. And he knows early in the morning, people are going out to the animals, going out to the fields or whatever they're doing. And so he's taking advantage of the family kind of separating. You have strength in numbers if you're together. It's harder for him to kind of control a group than if he can pick them off one by one. For me, it's kind of speculatory, but it's a theory that I'm I'm putting out here is that he's lying in wait Knowing individuals out of the house are going to isolate themselves because they are just going to do their normal, very early morning routine, Mm -hmm. and then he is picking them off. So when he does go into the house in order to be able to go after the financial assets, he has less threat inside the house that he has to take on. That's what I think is going on. Now, one of the things in in the Sprague case, the victims are saying it was a black man, However, the wife said it was a masked man. Did the husband, could he recall anything about his attacker? Because oftentimes when you have such massive head trauma, you don't remember, you know, the events that led up to that attack.
0: I don't think Seely can say anything. I think this is all Sarah's statement, and that's it.
1: Okay, so maybe, you know, because if he's fully masked up, is she seeing his hands? Is is he wearing clothing that allows her to see skin color? But also remember that in the Townsend case, the wife said she thought it was possibly a Black man. So now you have across two cases, witnesses saying possibly a black man. Right. Okay.
0: Now, shoe prints come into play in this case, to me, in an unexpected way. So when detectives go to the house and they look outside the house, it is snow, fresh snow, and they find shoe prints. They follow these shoe prints from the Sprague house all the way to a local store. They go inside and the shop owner says, what are you guys doing here? And investigators say, we just had a home invasion, robbery, be on the lookout for an assailant. The only thing we know about him is the wife says that he is a black man. And the shop owner points to a black customer that has just purchased some crackers and cheese. And before he can leave, the police stop him. And this suspect now is named Charles Rugg. And he is from Oyster Bay, Long Island. He is a local.
1: Okay, and do his shoes match the shoe prints that are found at the crime scene in snow?
0: They do. And Charles isn't saying anything. Charles is petrified because by this time, Oyster Bay, this area of Long Island, is in an uproar. And as soon as they see the local sea investigators walk a man out of the local store and they're detaining him, there is a lynch mob that's forming, particularly because they see it's a black man. So they know that there are three families now that have been attacked because word has gotten around. This investigation has taken a day or two and they find, you know, this man, they put him under arrest. There is a lot of tension already between the local black and white communities in this area and there is a mob that's forming. Ultimately, the police are alarmed by this and have to protect him, and they have to take him to a local hotel where there are more mobs forming. Finally, at night, at around eight o'clock, they move Charles to a milk train that's headed to Long Island City, and then he's booked in Queens County Jail. He says, you're crazy. I haven't done anything. I don't know anything about these robberies. I don't know anything about the maybes. And The police keep most of this information under wraps, but it's eventually revealed that Charles admits to attacking the Sprags. And he says that this was, you know, something that was sort of spur of the moment. He didn't mean to hurt them. He didn't get very much money from it. But eventually, there is an issue because they're trying to connect him to all three of these. So he has admitted to the Sprags, but he won't admit to anything else.
1: Okay, now with the Sprag, this is an unusual situation in which the shoe print track goes straight from the crime scene to this store. Yep. And from the Sprague attack, the offender stole a total of $38. Correct. Very small amount. So now, Rug, this offender, if he's going straight to the store, he should have that $38 minus whatever he purchased at the store mm-hmm. on him, unless he had more cash on him than just the $38. And the thirty-eight dollars was it thirty-eight dollars in cash? Was it coinage? You know, is there something more you know unique about what was stolen that could further enhance the fact that what Rugg has on his person is truly part of the stolen goods from the Sprague House?
0: And I think that must have been what led to his confession in that attack, because you're kind of caught. You have footprints that are going from the house to the store, and you have witnesses who are saying this is probably the person. So I think that's why he admitted to that. But there's a huge difference between beating someone who survives and a double murder in another case. And I think Charles Rugg knows that. And so he is trying to be very quiet, except it turns out that they find out Charles Rugg had once worked for the Maybes as a stonemason. Okay. This is where Mr. Garrett comes back in. So Garrett Maybe is a witness once again. This poor man, every time someone pops up as a a suspect, I'm sure he gets his hopes up. So Garrett does know Charles, and Garrett says there is no way that he did this to my family. No way. He said, I've known him for a very long time, long before Garrett even lost his vision. And he said that Charles never once went inside their house. He says there's no way that Charles would have known around the house to go upstairs into his wife's room and to find the bureau and to collect all of this stuff. He said he would have never known where those valuables were. And on top of that, I don't know what this says either about Charles or about Annie, But Garrett is not convinced that Charles Rugg, the suspect, could have taken Annie. He said, I don't think he could have overpowered her. So either she was a woman who was in fantastic shape or he was a smaller man. But Garrett just said, there's no way in hell this ever happened. And that's it. And and it was starting to be convincing to
1: the police. Garrett is an unreliable witness. That is proven at this point and then assessing the physical capability of Rug to be able to take out Annie. It's more than just, you know, physical attributes. It's how did the attack occur? You know, did Annie walk into the barn and was attacked, you know, blitzed from behind and then immediately rendered unconscious while being strangled? So, at this point, I can't put any weight on what Garrett's saying, the fact that Charles Rugg checks that box of having what I would say inside knowledge at the Maybe House worked in the occupation Then, which now we have the Tappan overalls and then the Mason Hammer found at the Townsend House. You know, there's characteristics about Rugg that are starting to cross all three cases. You know, we know he's caught red-handed in the Sprague case, Mm -hmm. but he's adding up you know, in terms of characteristics as a suspect, just at this point, he's just a suspect for maybe and Townsend. But now the investigation really has to drill down. Does he possess any of the stolen items? From those two other cases? Does he have any clothing back at his place that has blood on it? And they wouldn't have been able to tie it to any cases. But, you know, of course, that would be something that would be significant. Did he have access to Tappin's possessions in order to be able to steal the overalls and Tappan's hammer? So you have to start looking. Can I show that he truly is the one responsible for these attacks? Or do we just have a weird set of circumstances that he's falling into. There's coincidences that can occur.
0: Well, let me catch you up on the Tappans real quick before we address those questions that you had. So Edmund Tappan has said that he gave a false confession in the case that his brother had attacked the people in the Townsend house. And Edmund says he just wanted the reward money is what he was looking for. And this is, again, you know, it goes to the state of mind of a witness. This is somebody who had been in jail. And of course, both men are released, particularly because they now have Charles Rugg in custody. So we talked about evidence that could be conclusive. I can see a way around this, but you tell me if this is really good hard evidence. The investigators go from basically door to door to different pawn shops, and they went to New York City. And they went to a pawn shop on the hunch that a robber, that's what they would do first is take the stolen stuff and have it pawned. They find one of the maybe stolen pieces of jewelry, which was the wristwatch. That was Garrett's wristwatch. And the pawnbroker said, yes, I bought this wristwatch. And he said, this is the guy who did it. And it was Charles Rugg. So the pawnbroker said, Charles Rugg is the one who sold me that wristwatch. Charles Rugg says, oh, yeah, I did sell that. And he says that he had met John Tappan at some point. And of course, Charles Rugg knows that John Tappan has been accused of this, that he's been in jail. I met John Tappan and he gave me this stuff and I decided to go ahead and pawn it. So he's trying to make a connection. And when he goes on trial, he's trying to pin this on John Tappan. And the prosecutor was very savvy. John Tappan was sitting in court and the prosecutor said, Okay, so John Tappan gave you this stuff and you pawned it, and Charles Rugg said yes. And he said, why don't you identify John Tappan right now? And he couldn't.
1: Yeah, no, that was that was a good move by the prosecutor. And, you know, I think it's important, you know, even though here you have Charles Rugg and he's putting on a defense, it's his defense attorney. I'm assuming he had representation. It's his defense attorney that is probably crafting a defense yep. and knows that Tappan was a suspect and has now created a story that would try to exonerate the incriminating evidence against Rugg.
0: Mm -hmm. So the Tappans are released and Charles Rugg is now connected to all three of these because he had done work at the Townsend House also. So now they can say that Charles Rugg knew all three properties. He knew who the inhabitants were, what their physical capabilities were, and they connected him to all three. He supposedly confessed to all three and actually said, you know, I had an accomplice, but then he kept his mouth shut. And we don't know if that was true. The 1800s was a notorious time period for terrible reporting. So that was the rumor, was that he had confessed to all three. He is indicted on seven counts, including two for first-degree murder, four for assault and robbery, and one for burglary. So they really nailed him down. And he is put on trial for Annie maybe's murder, who is the daughter of the thirty nine year old found in the barn prosecutors were concerned that they didn't have enough evidence. And then they had decided they were going to put him on trial for her murder first. And if that didn't work, they put him on trial for Lydia. They were basically going to look for a jury who finally agreed with him. But it didn't matter because ultimately they said that the jury found him guilty. And, you know, this was a very difficult case, particularly for Garrett. Maybe he took the stand to try to describe What it felt like to have this man who he thought was his friend, who he had known for years, take his wife and his child from him. And I think that was very difficult. He was doing it all just out of love to try to get justice.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where he's just trying. Right. As an an investigator, you have to assess— is this statement reliable? Is this process reliable? Because you are dealing with trying to, you're, you're trying to solve the case, and you're also dealing with suspects who may or may not have anything to do with the case. You got to, you, you got to put the, the proper weight on the information that's coming in. And to use Garrett over and over again in this voice recognition capacity was just wrong. That's really on the police and not on Garrett.
0: Well, and just a little of an aside, Charles Rugg, he was married, and he also had a mistress— and both women failed him in different ways. He was really relying on his wife to provide an alibi for at least a one or two of the home invasions so he wouldn't be executed. And she died a few days before the trial. And then he has this mistress who lives in New York City. And instead of bolstering anything about his character, she says, you know, I thought it was weird that Charles had suspiciously come into a lot of money recently. And this seals the deal for the jury and he is not surprisingly convicted, found guilty of first-degree murder, and eventually executed at the Long Island City Jail. Boy, what a story. You've got all three of these crimes committed within the same proximity, and this just completely freaked out the community. Little simple farmland in New York in the 1800s, and They almost railroaded quite a few people because of that fear. And I know that the public can really pressure investigators. We saw this with the Idaho case. It must be very difficult to investigate high-profile cases like this.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you
0: know. (laughs) It's an understatement.
1: (laughs) I think in some ways, the investigators in this case were lucky that in the last case, in the Sprague case, they, they literally had the smoking gun. Shoe prints in snow leading straight from the crime scene to the store, and Rugg was still within the general area of that store. Absent having something like that, I think there's a good chance that probably an innocent person would have been convicted. They would have had Garrett on the stand saying, I recognize his voice, you know, and boom, jurors are going to just go ahead and convict, you know, and that. I guarantee over the uh, eons, there's so many innocent people that have been falsely convicted due to the lack of really solid, objective evidence, good witness statements, you know, strong circumstances. Yep, All three cases, I think circumstantially, there's a little bit of physical evidence in here with the uh, the wristwatch out there at the pawn store. But I do think that uh, Rugg is is likely responsible. In this day and age, uh, particularly to prove the homicides, uh, most certainly we would be going after a lot more from a physical evidence standpoint to really tie him into those cases.
0: And going back to witness testimony, because we haven't talked about that enough, and I'm sure we will in future episodes, Garrett maybe knew Charles Rugg really well. So he positively identified a couple of men who he either didn't know or barely knew. And yet this man he knew even before he could picture him because he had known him before he had lost his vision I don't know if that's sort of a bias, unconscious bias or trauma from what happened, but clearly that shows once again, when you're going through a trauma like that, as a witness, you can't assume that this is someone who's going to be able to recall every detail when they're going through a trauma like that.
1: And head trauma, that also is a significant aspect to what what happened to Garrett, you know, and how did that impact his memory, his recollection. The details he provided leading up to when he was rendered unconscious by the blow to the head is compelling. You know, that adds up with the scene. So, you know, he, he most certainly is alert and seems to have good recall. I think it's interesting that, you know, with Garrett not being somebody who was born blind, Yeah. So now he is blind, and we know that once, let's say, the eyesight goes, that the auditory sense becomes enhanced. Right. But he wasn't born that way or hadn't lived most of his life that way. So I bet if, let's say, Garrett was a lifelong person who did not have any sight, maybe more finely in tune to be able to recognize aspects about somebody they're hearing inside the house versus Garrett who is recently in life, lacking the eyesight, you know, so he's not as keen at picking up nuances in what he's hearing. I tried to take advantage of this scenario, and it was suggested suggestion by a prosecutor in my office on the Golden State Killer case, because we had a tape recording of a phone call that the Golden State Killer had made to one of his victims. Mm-hmm. And there was details in the backdrop, And this prosecutor suggested, hey, there's this blind group in San Francisco. See if they can potentially pull out more details, which I thought was brilliant. You know, ultimately, I never did use that group. But it is something that, you know, you can have people that have these uh, extraordinary capabilities It doesn't appear Garrett had that. He's identifying multiple men, unfortunately. But even if he had it, I just don't put a whole heck of a lot of weight on something so subjective.
0: Well, I love hearing about techniques that people have used in the past, and I still think, I suspect, are used now that are not so great. That really could add to the conviction of somebody who was innocent. So yet again, you and I are talking about tools that, could potentially be helpful in certain circumstances, boy, but it is a gray line. You really have to know what you're doing, and it has to be part of a bigger package of really solid evidence. So this was a great case to talk about that.
1: I appreciate it, Paul. No, for sure. It was a fascinating case, actually.
0: See you next week for an even more fascinating case, I promise.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: Thanks. This has been an Exactly Right production.
1: For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash bones sources.
0: Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi.
1: Research by Marin McClashan and Kate Winkler-Dawson.
0: Our mixing engineer is Ryo Baum.
1: Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel.